But uh, no, I'm very grateful to be here. I think I've been on this campus once before, some years ago, when I did a workshop for some folks from uh, Hendersonville Church, I think it was, and uh, decided that when I came here today, I was going to take my time and leave early. I left Collegedale about 9.30 this morning. So instead of taking the freeways, I entered into my GPS that I was going to take no highways. So I have seen more rural area of of Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Tennessee than I ever want to see again. (laughs) It took me around Robin Hood's barn, as they say, and I... uh, I did enjoy it and stopped by a river and had a picnic and I was sorry my wife couldn't be with me this weekend. Her sister is visiting her from Michigan and so she uh, decided that she needed to stay close to home. But it's really nice to be with uh, you all and uh, I'm, I'm grateful to have the opportunity to share. Seventh-day Adventists. What are they? What do they believe? What are they known for? What do people think about when they hear the name Seventh-day Adventist? I'm going to ask you to tell me. Haystacks. (laughs) Haystacks. That's... I don't know if it's those that are not church members that think that or if that's the church members, but I... True, it's haystacks were an invention, I think, weren't they? What's something else that people might think about? You're sitting in an airplane, you're talking to your friend, and you get into a conversation, and you mention your Seventh-day Adventist, and they say, what? Won't receive blood transfusions. Uh-huh. It's a little misconception. Who is it that doesn't receive blood transfusions? Jehovah's Witnesses. Somebody else have a... Some people think we're a cult. That's true. Cult. We won't go into the details of what a cult is, but uh, certainly it's a group of people that are very focused on themselves and not outside themselves. Something else that somebody... Don't eat meat... Vegetarians. Yesterday, I was at a Rotary meeting in Chattanooga and sat at a table with a group of people. And it came up that I was a pastor from the Seventh Adventist Church. And the word blue zones came up because I mentioned Loma Linda. And they knew about the blue zones, the healthy uh, place. He said, Isn't that the only place in the United States? That's a blue zone. I said, I think it is. I think it's the only place. So that's a a good thing. What else might people think about when they think about Seventh-day Adventists? Now, some of you are new to Seventh-day Adventism. What did you think about before when you first heard about Seventh-day Adventists? Well, um, I didn't realize you were going to add that little part, but when I first read about the Sabbath... Um, in the army, um, unfortunately, that definition said, according to Jewish custom, worship on Saturday. So I figured since I wasn't Jewish, I didn't have to keep it Sabbath. So. <laughs> okay. 
and you learn differently. Yes. <laughs> Someone else have something? I won't take a lot of time, but I know there's other things. Hospitals make a significant impact, don't they? As I mentioned, Lou Melinda, the Adventist health system has, I don't know, less, how many million people go through it on an annual basis? It's a very huge organization. And there's a goal to make it more identified with Seventh-day Adventists. Somebody else. I'll tell one other story about Seventh-day Adventists. My father was a, a church administrator. He was the president of the Pacific Union out in California. And in the process of making some religious liberty presentations, after Dwight Eisenhower had uh, retired from being president of the United States, you can see how old I am now, my father <laughs> knew Dwight Eisenhower, he, uh, he went to visit and present Dwight Eisenhower with a religious liberty plaque or something. And so they went into his office and sat down to have the appointment. And uh, he, my dad was introduced as a Seventh-day Adventist administrator. And Dwight Eisenhower said something like, let me think now, there's something about peanut butter <laughs> and Seventh-day Adventist. Isn't that unusual? Peanut butter. Apparently, when he was the general of the army, there were some Seventh-day Adventist vegetarians who wouldn't eat anything but peanut butter <laughs> to get their protein. And so what he knew about Seventh-day Adventists was peanut butter. Interesting. What should people know about Seventh-day Adventists? We love Jesus. How will they know that? How will they know that? How will that become the first thing that comes to their mind that we love Jesus? I uh, will talk tomorrow about that probably more than this evening. I was in um, California and walking along the street when someone came to witness to me and uh, their process of witness was they asked what religion I was and so I mentioned Seventh-day Adventists and so they pulled out a folder, it was about this big, it was like a big file folder and they flipped through the file folders until they found a folder against Seventh-day Adventists. And they pulled out a brochure that told why Seventh-day Adventism was wrong. Now that's an interesting approach. Rather than approaching people with a positive message, this is what's wrong. You know, identity, mission, of who we are is very important. It's very important to have a sense of identity. It's very important for other people to know what we stand for. Identity is very, businesses spend a lot of time, a lot of money trying to establish an identity. Uh, Subaru, you know, that's a car. What is their 
mission or their their uh, logo, not logo, but their tagline. It's about love, isn't it? Love something. I looked up their mission statement. We created the Subaru Love Promise because we believe in making the world a better place. It's our vision to show love and respect to all people. That's a car company. Come on. Our core values, the convictions of the Seventh Adventist Church, grow out of an understanding of Scripture and that the Bible is the foundation of what we believe and stand for. The Bible is the Word of God. You know, we have defined 28 fundamental beliefs or 28 significant understandings of our relationship with God. Those can be boiled down to a lot fewer than 25. One of them, I think, is the Bible is the Word of God. It would be impossible to seriously maintain our convictions without having some standard to depend on and without having a standard to look to to demonstrate our convictions, convictions that stabilize us in a society that is pretty unbalanced. If we're to maintain our identity, if we're to have an identity that has a strong authority and conviction, we need to understand the Bible as the Word of God. Now, what is your authority? There are many ways people establish authority. There are those whose, what, theology, I might say, or whose philosophy is kind of out, developed out of psychology or family traditions or a, a newspaper advice column. Or a person's authority grows from, you know, my mommy told me to do this, or I took a class once and a teacher said this, and I heard a psychiatrist say this, or my horoscope predicted. Such a mix of authority is really no authority at all. Because all of us need a core conviction about what we look to, and that needs to be the Bible is the word of God. Think about your life for a minute. Who or what has authority in your life? I would define authority as that which would get you to change, to do something different, would influence you. If proof of authority in your life is that which gets you to change, what is it that has authority in your life? Is it your doctor? Can he get you to change? I know they, I go to the doctor and he tells me to do things differently. I don't always do very well. Your boss? Is your spouse your authority? Sometimes she or he might wish they were. Are your parents an authority? What is an authority in your life? Well, I think we'd all agree, theoretically, the Bible is my authority, right? Absolutely. Are we serious about that? Do we read the Bible like it is an authority? I went sailing. I got in this little small sailboat, pulled up the sail, 
and it caught the wind, and I took out on the water, and for some reason I had no control. I just went where the wind went, and I realized that I had not put down the centerboard. You know, that centerboard that's supposed to provide direction, stability? So the wind was just blowing me wherever it could. Seneca said, if any wind is a good wind, if you don't know where you're going. And so we need to have a centerboard, a center conviction about authority in our lives. The Bible is the word of God. Paul encouraged the Ephesians that they no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. No longer infants tossed by the waves. Are there waves around us today? You know, you look at television these days. If you look at the news, generally it's not news anymore. It's entertainment. People are polarizing the country and using the news as, as entertainment to attract people so they can sell more advertising. We are tossed by the waves of culture much more than we think we are. We are influenced much more by culture than we think we are. Our church has chosen to maintain a standard of reference as the Bible, a centerboard, a binding force, the glue of holding us together. The Bible is the word of God. That may rather seem like an elementary proposition. The Bible is the word of God. Sure it is. But there are many Christians and churches that don't find that to be the truth anymore. What does it mean? God has communicated to man through this book. God has communicated to woman through this book. God. That's incredible. I think that we should read it, don't you think? We should probably read it more than we do. We kind of think we know what's in it, and we, however, I think, tend to follow more even the culture of the church rather than our own convictions having read the Word of God. We should not listen to, read, or watch things that are presented to us unless they've gone through the filter of the Word of God. Philippians 4.8, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. I once pastored a church in California where I printed that text on a card and asked everyone to put it on top of their television. Whatever is pure, lovely, admirable. We must hold to the fact that the Word of God defines us. It defines where we came from. In the beginning, God created. It defines where we are going. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again. It defines why we are here. Go and make disciples of all nations. We must not accept by default such information from others, but we must inculcate it, build it into our own lives.
Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you have learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture is to help, is our centerboard, is our foundation, is our touchstone, and if this is the Word of God as we believe that it is, we need to continually spend time reading it. The Bible was not written to answer every question that you come across in terms of being a rule book. Uh, it doesn't say anything about how to use your cell phone or how fast you should drive or not drive or uh, lots of things that our contemporary culture deals with. But it establishes principles, principles that we are to follow. The core value, the Bible is the word of God. You know, when a, when a friend of yours makes a statement you don't really understand, and you have a good relationship with that person, you tend to spin it in a positive way. Well, you don't really maybe understand what they intended, or you need to sit down and talk with them to understand them better, or you don't immediately judge them in a bad way, even though the statement they made just doesn't make any sense to you. When you have a relationship with someone, you tend to take things that they say and do positively and interpret them in a positive light, not tearing them down. So with our understanding of the words of the Lord. We are friends, we follow principles of his communication and not looking for problems. We, we believe in thought inspiration, not word-for-word word inspiration. Not doing what Peter says some were doing with Paul. 2 Peter 3.16, Peter says about Paul, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. And some of you who've read Hebrews may still find that to be true. Hard to understand which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. So even Peter was saying at the time that he was living, there were people that were reading Paul's writings and abusing them and not understanding the motive for Paul and not interpreting it in a positive way. And so we need to be careful as we use the Bible as the word of God that we take the principles and not seek to get hung up on problems that some people might seek to create out of their own lack of understanding of Scripture. Mark Twain once said, most people are bothered by those passages of Scripture they don't understand. But the passages that bother me are the ones I do understand. <laughs> That's good, isn't it? There are plenty of passages to bother us. There are plenty of passages to change us. So what are the implications of this core value? If we believe the book is a 
core of our lives, we need to spend time with it. If you believe the truth is between the covers of the book, you would read it. The problem, as I said before, some of us don't spend enough time reading it. You know, it's like, well, I read that once. Well, it's like uh, you don't have to read it again. I mean, it would be the same would be true if you, I ate once. I don't need to eat again. <laughs> we need to continually fill ourselves with the Word of God. When the television and radio build into our minds on a daily basis their values, we must always have the foundation at, our, at, at hand to know our true values. Receiving instructions from the Bible is more than developing a list of things to do. It's about developing an attitude and experience. As I said, to point the way, not to measure the steps. It's a compass, not a rule book. It points us in the right direction. Karl Barth said, only the doer of the word is the real hearer of the word. Do you get that? Only the doer is the real hearer. You don't really hear it if we aren't doing it. I could ask again, it, we are theoretically, we all agree that the Bible is our ultimate authority. But I'd like to ask us, are the principles in the Bible changing my life? Let's read a few. The Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Jesus said that to those who were acquainted with the Pharisees, who were all the opposite of being poor in spirit. And he was pointing out that you can't really receive God's grace until you don't think you have it all yourself already. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Are you meek when that driver runs you off the road? Are you humble when that road rage tends to overtake? Are we meek in our experience with other people? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You heard it was said long ago, do not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment and is answerable. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. You've learned it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. You've heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek also. You've heard it said that love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. Do we really use this as authority? That's a little scary. It's easy to argue the seventh day is the Sabbath and you ought to go to church on Saturday. It's easy to argue that the state of the dead and that we don't immediately go to heaven or hell. It's easy to argue some of those things, but 
are we living these things? Are we living this kind of, of love that the Bible talks about? We'll talk some more about love tomorrow. The Bible says, again, in Matthew six nineteen, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is, your heart will be. You know, if, if you want me to help you understand your priorities in life, give me your checkbook. And let me look through the checkbook. And I'll tell you what your priorities are. It's very easy when we look at how we use our resources that tells us where our priorities are. And Jesus says, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more important than food, the body more important than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in bars, barns, yet their Heavenly Father feeds them. You're more valuable than they are. Who of you, by worrying, can add an hour to his life? What would that do to our stress level if we took this as God's authority? Or Matthew 7, 1, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and the measure you use, it will be measured to you. We could go on and on and on. We tend not to spend a lot of time on some of these verses, because sometimes maybe they hit a little too close to home. If the Bible is so toothless that it causes no change in our lives, results in no struggles in our hearts, produces no confessions in our souls, and changes no hate to love, transforms no enemy to a friend, empties no materialism into generosity, and alters no attitudes of our mind, then it's not really an authority in our life. You know, I think generally, if you want to know what the right thing is to do, think about doing something that comes naturally and then do the opposite. And that's probably the right thing to do. So I asked the question I asked at the beginning, what is the authority in your life? People, doctor, spouse, family, boss, for the Bible to change us, it needs to be a personal authority. Jesus needs to be personal. It's personal as we consider these as letters from our friend Jesus. Those who have had a great light and privileges and live only unto themselves are under greater condemnation before God than are those who are in doctrinal error but who live to do good to others. There's a quote from Ellen White. I'm going to repeat it. Those who have had great light and privileges and live only unto themselves are under greater condemnation before God than those who are in doctrinal error but who live to do good to others. What's more important, doctrinal error or doing good to others? Was the good Samaritan in doctrinal error in some ways? Probably. But he was the one who was commended. When God, <clears throat> when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, he will sit on the glorious throne. All nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people from one another as a sh shepherd 
separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared to you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, feed you thirsty, and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And of course you remember the story of the Good Samaritan who had the highest view of biblical authority. The priest who could argue the fine points of theology and passed by the poor man robbed beside the road, or the good Samaritan who doesn't have orthodox beliefs but binds the wounds of the wounded. When I was the pastor of the Collegedale Church, I frequently concluded sermons with a story that was in the framework of Fenton Forest. And so I'm going to tell a Fenton Forest story. Any of you who used to be at the Collegedale Church a hundred years ago may remember those. Once upon a time in Fenton Forest, Freddy the Fox discovered a map in an old cave he was looking to move his den. The map was worn and weathered clearly written on some very old paper. It appeared to give directions to some sort of treasure. Freddy was ecstatic. Freddy determined to discover the treasure, and he carefully studied the map. He bought a topographical map of Fenton Forest so he could follow the terrain more closely. He analyzed the twists and turns in the map and tried to carefully identify all the landmarks that were indicated on it. He marked the map with the path and measured the distance he would have to travel. He enlisted the support of Wise Old Owl to interpret the old language on the map, and he even talked to Gruff the Bear for help in identifying some of the landmarks on the map. He was careful to show only portions of the map to others so no one could beat him to the treasure. He purchased an ultraviolet lamp so he could study the authenticity of the map, and he had carbon radioactive 14 dating done to see if it was as old as it seemed. After months and months of study, and after his umpteenth trip to Wise Old Owl, Wise Old Owl finally asked him if he found the treasure yet. Oh no, Freddy said, I haven't looked for it yet, I'm just studying the map. Wise Old Owl said, you'll never find the treasure unless you do more than read the map. And that's true of the scriptures. We'll never know the treasure it holds until we read it and become doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. Eternal Father in heaven, help us to be doers of the word, to hold it close to our hearts, to live as Jesus would have us live toward one another. In the name of your Son, amen.
As we close our worship this evening, would you join me in a little chorus? Whisper prayer in the morning, whisper prayer at noon, whisper prayer in the evening to keep your heart in tune. When we come to that verse where we sing, Jesus may come in the morning, Jesus may come at noon, I want you to change the words a little bit on that. On the last verse, on the last line of that verse, would you say, I know he's coming soon. Would you sing that with me? Whisper a prayer in the morning. Whisper a prayer at noon. Whisper a prayer in the evening to keep your heart in tune. God answers prayer in the morning. God answers prayer at noon. God answers prayer in the evening. So keep your heart in tune. Jesus may come in the morning. Jesus may come at noon. Jesus may come in the evening. I know he's coming soon. Have a wonderful Sabbath evening. And tomorrow, breakfast is at 8 o'clock. And uh, you might want to come a little bit early so we can get finished, and that way we can get Sabbath school started on time. Sabbath school actually starts at 9 o'clock, so uh, try to be here right at 9. And so have a wonderful evening, folks. Good night.